Around 1930, there was a fellow named Charles Darrow. He was unemployed. The Great Depression broke him. So, as the story goes, he sat down at his kitchen in Germantown, Pennsylvania, and he pulled out an oil cloth and began to write the names of some streets on the piece of oil cloth. They were street names from Atlantic City, where he and his wife visited during more prosperous times. And um, he found some old scrap pieces of wood molding from a construction company, and he cut out little houses, little hotels. Got some paint samples from a local hardware store, free, and he started to decorate his properties, and uh, he found some, some play money from another game, and uh, he used colored buttons as markers on this game he was creating. And he and his wife would sit down every evening, and uh, for lack of any other entertainment, they would play what they called the game. Every night, they'd play the game. Friends and family would come over, they'd play the game. And uh, they, they liked it. They enjoyed it. They began to ask if he would make them one. And he started to make them, handmade the game for them. Someone finally came up with the name Monopoly. And Darrow soon got overwhelmed with requests for the game. And so he offered the idea to Parker Brothers to, to buy it and produce it. Uh, they turned him down because there were 52 design errors, they told him. But once he sold 5,000 handmade copies to a Philadelphia department store, uh, they changed their mind. And in 1935, Monopoly became the best-selling game in all of America, and it has sold a lot since then. Darrow, in fact, became uh, the first person in America to become a millionaire from a board game. Uh, today, Monopoly is still the best-selling board game in the world. In its 80-plus year history, some 275 million games have been sold, somewhere around the, uh, the neighborhood of $1.5 billion, not Monopoly dollars, real dollars have been made from this game. Uh, it's made in 47 languages, sold in 114 countries, an estimated 1 billion people have played this board game, and my personal favorite they have made more than 9 billion little greenhouses. That's enough for everybody on the planet to have at least one. There's all kinds of records. The longest Monopoly game in history lasted 70 straight days. You thought your game was long, you know? Longest game uh, Monopoly in a treehouse was 286 hours. Longest game played underground was 100 hours. Longest played upside down was 36 hours. And my favorite, the longest played in a bathtub, 99 hours. Man, you want to talk about some board game dedication and some puckered fingers, I would imagine, don't you? How many of you played Monopoly at some point in your life? <laughs> yeah. Did you win? Did you get an argument? There there's can be conflict, of course, when you play games, especially games with money. And my guess is even if you've never played the board game Monopoly before, I'm guessing you've played some games with money. In fact, as we continue our series this morning in uh, Acts, let me invite you to open to Acts chapter 4. And uh, Acts chapter 5 is what we're going to be looking at today. There's a contrast here in Luke's 
description of the early church between a church community that is, is sharing the warmth of the Spirit's generosity. They're sharing together, but that's contrasted with a couple who played some games with money. And their, their tragedy reminds us to give up our games and to gain God's direction instead. Let's look at the story in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Here's Luke's description. Again, the church has seen uh, Jesus uh, not only resurrected, but uh, ascended into heaven, and now they're beginning to live out the mission of Jesus. And in verse 32, this summary, Luke says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They had this unity together. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. They had this incredible generosity, too. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field and owned, uh, that he owned and uh, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, you know, just like the ancient Israelites of old, who would bring the sort of animal sacrifice and bring it to the foot of the altar, now the foot of the apostles is the place of giving and sacrifice for the church. And here, God watches and waits writes Willie James Jennings, to see faith that connects resources to need. The church was caring for the poor, and still does. In our best days, we still do. And in their case, not only were they caring for the poor, but we get this example of Joseph. Joseph was a man of the cloth. He was a Levite. A Levite was a, a official in the Jewish temple of the day. They ranked kind of under the, the priests of the day. They policed the temple grounds. They provided music for sacrifices and special ceremonies. Now, according to Old Testament law, Levites were not supposed to own land. But maybe that had changed in these days. Joseph has some property, at least maybe not outside of Palestine. See, Joseph is from Cyprus, a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. I don't know. I don't know where his land was, but maybe this was a nice piece of real estate. Maybe the church saw him sell some land from Cyprus, and they thought, wow, the preacher's selling beachside property. What a gift. But even with such generosity, there were some who were playing some games. Keep reading, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. We'll, we'll learn that he's, they're lying about what they're giving. Apparently they were going to give all of the money of the sale of the prophets, but instead they kept back some. This won't be the first married couple, of course that test God. <laughs> Adam and Eve uh, modeled this a long time ago. But Peter knows something's up. Verse 3, he said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. You want to talk about a church service? Wow! 
Was it shock? Was this a heart attack? I don't know. He died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. Hasty burials in their world were not uncommon for people like criminals or traitors or even um, you know, someone like Judas who committed suicides. Kind of shameful deaths might be heard, uh, you know, they might hurriedly bury them, but even that, this is so fast. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, boy, how do you explain that to some young men? (laughs) Man, the preaching's really powerful today, guys. Carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Man, this is a weird story. What in the world can you say about this? Except that Ananias and Sapphira died because of some games they were playing with money. Apparently, playing money games with God among the people of God is serious business. And honestly, I think you and I were tempted to play lots of games with this too. It's kind of a confusing game they're playing. Why did they do this? And and part of me thinks, well, maybe they did it because they wanted to look good. They wanted to look generous. Maybe they wanted the credit and prestige of sacrificial giving without the inconvenience of it. That's what John Stott writes. Maybe they wanted a nickname like Barnabas. You know, if we sell a field like he did and everybody sees it, man, they'll they'll think we're great and they'll, they'll love us too and... Maybe they were playing the game with money that we sometimes like to play when we pretend with it. You ever play that game with money? You pretend with it? Hide behind it sometimes, you know? (laughs) Maybe sometimes you try to look more wealthy than you are with deep debt on two big houses or two new cars or two extensive wardrobes. Or, or maybe you pretend with it by trying to exude the image of being very generous with your money. You know, you let it slip that you give a lot of money to this charity or the school or, or even this church when you don't. Stuff can seduce us into pretending with money. Let's face it, we're a community that's addicted to stuff. Uh, Author John Ortberg years ago wrote, he says, we all have stuff. We see it, want it, buy it, display it, insure it, and compare it with other people's stuff. We talk about whether or not they have too much stuff, and we pass judgment on other people's collections of stuff, and we collect our own little pile, and imagine if the pile got big enough, we would feel successful or secure That's how you keep score in Monopoly, he writes, and that's how our culture generally keeps score as well. And I think he's right. I think he's right. Did you know that in our country alone, we have 50,000 self-storage facility units? 50,000, over 2 billion square feet of space to store our extra stuff. The Hoover Dam could be filled with our extra clothes and skis and knickknacks and keepsakes that come from those storage facilities 26 times over. 
Now, in the 1960s, self-storage facilities, that didn't even exist as an industry. Now, we pay $40 billion a year to store our extra stuff. It's five times more lucrative than the music industry. We, we play this game because I, I think we believe that, that, that hiding behind this paper, you know, makes us free. If we could just hold back our stuff, if we could get more stuff, accumulate stuff, if we could hoard it, accumulate properties, build houses and hotels, then we'd be happy. We'd be happy. Uh, like J.J. Astor, who was a real, real estate billionaire a century ago. He built the, the famous Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, among other places. We, we'd be happy like him, except he said, I am the most miserable man on earth. <laughs> no, stop it. If we could just get more stuff, if we could accumulate, if we could have more, we'd be happy like W.H. Vanderbilt, who was the richest man in the world in 1885, a railroad mogul whose name, his family name marks a university, Vanderbilt University. We, we'd be happy like him, except, except he said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Oh, come on. Stop it. If we could just get enough of this, this stuff, you know, we, we'd be happy like John D. Rockefeller, who said, I've made millions, but they brought me no happiness. Or we'd be happy like Andrew Carnegie, except, except he said, millionaires seldom smile. Or, or we'd be happy like Henry Ford, you know, the mogul of, of automobiles, except he said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. What? You see, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is not that they didn't give the whole amount of money to the apostles to help with those in need. After all, Peter says in um, chapter 5, verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal? I mean, it's your, it's your stuff. It's your money. You can do with it whatever you want. The problem seems to be a little bit deeper. It's a little hidden. The text says Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. Luke chooses a rare Greek verb to describe this keeping back. It's the word... Uh, Nasfizo, uh, it means to, to pilfer or embezzle is a word, or to misappropriate is another term. It's only used one other time in the New Testament to describe stealing. And not only that, it was the, the rare kind of Greek word used in a translation of Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember what happened in Joshua 7? There was a man who kept back part of the war booty that was supposed to be devoted to God. Some gold bars, a Babylonian robe, dug a little hole in the ground, put it away, nobody's going to notice, doesn't, no big deal. He sort of embezzled this war money. Except God noticed. And judgment came, and the Israelites in those ancient days went off to battle someone else, and they lost this battle, and people lost their lives, and they began to ask the question, what's going on? And they found out that he had done this thing. And in fact, it was only the death of the embezzler that allowed Israel to move forward. His name was Achan. See, Ananias, like Achan, believed that, that embezzled that wealth, that sort of lying about this and hoarding this away would compound happiness and God wouldn't notice. But he's wrong. Scholar 
Craig Keener says it this way. He said, God took the corporate purity of his people and the importance of sincerity far more seriously than most Christians do today. Ananias, whose name means God is gracious, was hoarding away money from the poor. And Sapphira, whose name means beautiful, did this ugly thing of lying to God in the church. They pledged to give the total amount of the sale, and they pretended instead. They lied. Stuff. I wonder if you're doing that. Are you lying for stuff? Are you lying to yourself, first and foremost, you know? Dead up to your eyeballs. Haven't paid off Christmas yet. (laughs) Are you lying to God? Are you living selfishly without... Giving and living generously among people, your family, your friends, the poor, the needy, the church, and others. We can't play pretend with God. No matter how many greenbacks you hide behind, God is the master of the board. He knows what's in your bank account. He knows what's in your heart. Stuff won't satisfy. Don't believe that lie. And certainly don't throw it to God. He hates hypocrisy. He won't stand for it. Even the wealthiest players can't hide or pretend forever. So don't play pretend. Maybe that was Ananias and Sapphira pretending. Or, or maybe, maybe honestly, they just wanted more, you know? They wanted more fame in the Christian community, more reputation. Maybe they wanted more money. Maybe they saw lavish homes in Jerusalem and Roman fineries, and they thought, we want that. And maybe they were playing the game we often play with money, which is we elevate it. We often believe the myth of more, that one day more will be enough. If I could just get more, if I could just have an iPhone 14 instead of a 13 or 12, or some of you have a 3 or flip phone, or, you know, if I could just get a Rivian truck, man, those look cool. If I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that degree, then, then I would be satisfied. Then it would be enough. trouble is we keep getting it and we keep finding that it doesn't mean it's better. Uh, Dr. Ronnie Janoff-Bullman did a study a number of years ago on lottery winners and she and her colleagues compared 22 major lottery winners with 22 people of average incomes and what they found is that over time the lottery winners of course originally when they win the lottery their happiness went very very high But very, very quickly, their happiness level reverted back to what it was before they won the lottery. In fact, they wound up no happier than the 22 couples of average income. They even lost much of their ability to find joy in small pleasures in life. And the trouble is, you don't believe that. I don't know if I believe that. What we believe is that more brings greater satisfaction. And Michael Drosnan describes a man who wanted more, and so he built a, one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more uh, pleasure, so he seduced the most glamorous women of his day. He wanted more adventure, so he set airspeed records and designed and built some of the most unique uh, aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he acquired political clout that was the envy of senators. He wanted more glamour, so... He crashed Hollywood, he owned studios, he courted stars, but near the end of his life, he was emaciated, 120 pounds over his six-foot-four-inch frame, long, scraggly beard, long, yellowed fingernails, 
needle marks all over? Howard Hughes was an addict of more. I can't help but ask, if Howard Hughes had pulled off one more deal, if he had just made one more million, if he had just tasted one more thrill, then would he have been enough? Would he have been happy? What about you? Just one more? Does that make you happy? Or what about the most adored of women, every woman envied her, every man wanted her attention. She had beauty, she had money, she had so much fame that four decades after her death, they auctioned off her personal items and they sold immediately. Marilyn Monroe died alone. You suppose if she had one more hit movie, one more magazine cover, dated one more powerful man, then, then that would have been enough. Then she would have been happy. Well, what about you? Just one more? What about a married couple who wanted more, more attention or more acclaim, more wealth? They, the community around them was one heart and one mind. Unity in this community around them, but they felt division. They had one foot in the community and another foot groping for more. Yet Ananias and Sapphira died without even getting to attend each other's funeral. You suppose that whatever paltry amount of money they kept in their pockets was worth that? Did the, the held back money make them happy? You get it. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. More is never enough. And the love of money, the love of it, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Have you known some? Are you one? It's a bad game playing with money, you know, elevating it in our minds. I wonder, did you ever play Monopoly? and learn something about yourself. Maybe something kind of nasty. Did you get cutthroat? Did you cheat? Did you hide some money under the board? Or maybe your sister was going to the bathroom and you pulled a few dollars, you know, a few fifties off. She will never going to see this. Try to cheat the bank. Anything to win. Did you look at your poor, sweet grandmother playing this board game with you, and did you say, pay up, granny? No free passes for you. Ironically, the invention of Monopoly game itself seems like a cutthroat story. Largely, Charles Darrow gets the credit for the inventor of the game, but it seems there's more and more evidence to suggest that Elizabeth Maggie had a game in 1902, 30 years before, called The Landlord's Game. And many, as you can even see from a look at it, it looks really, really close to the Monopoly game that we know. In fact, when Darrow sold the rights uh, of the game to Parker Brothers, um, it began to take off. The company bought up the rights to similar games. And um, for the, the patent to The Landlord's Game, which looks very, very similar, they gave offered and gave Elizabeth a whole $500 and no royalties. 
Elevating money can be a bad game. And maybe you're playing that game right now. And I want you to be honest with God this morning. Maybe we need to take a moment and just kind of set down the game pieces that we're in every single day and kind of lean back and just look at the whole board once again. In fact, this morning, if you've ever played a game with money, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your wallet. You got a wallet on you? Just grab it, grab it out of your purse, put it in your hands. Look inside to see if anybody's home. Pretty bare in there. Just hold it for a minute. You got it? We put so much power in this piece of leather or fake leather. (laughs) And the question is, are you holding it or is it holding you? If you got your wallet out, I want you to try something. It's going to take some trust. I want you to hand it to somebody who's sitting next to you. Jim, I got to give it to you, buddy, okay? There you go. (laughs) Now, I want you to just hold it, not rifle through it, okay? Okay, now we're going to take up an offering, so let's go ahead and get the plates out. We're going (laughs) to... Whatever. I saw some of you husbands handing it to your wife, and you're like, this isn't hard at all. I do this every single day. It's no no big deal. Here's the question. Is it tough? And why is it tough? All right, give the wallets back. We don't want any... (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) See, what I want you to hear from this story of Ananias and Sapphira is... The correction to the money games that we're so tempted to play, the correction is honesty and trust in the assembly. God's judgment brought great fear and truth. And verse 11 marks the first time in the book of Acts that the term church is used for the assembled disciples of Jesus. Church. Church was first named while some were sharing the warmth of the Spirit's generosity among each other, and while some were hoarding and playing games with money. Maybe this story shows us that we need each other to avoid the games we so often play with money. We need the church. When there is trust, when there is honesty, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. When there is distrust and deception, the church falters. And maybe we need a God to direct us and to keep us honest and open and accountable as well So today, maybe we need to begin by just telling ourselves the truth and telling God the truth as well. And I want to do that right now. I want to invite you to just bow your heads. I want to pray from Psalm 32. And as I read this in just a moment, I invite you to silently pray along as well. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Why don't you take a moment and just quietly confess to God any money games you might be playing right now. Just say, I will confess and then fill in the blank. said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, O God, forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And all God's people said, Amen.